Chapter 8, Part 2 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Anna Roberts. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 8, Part 2. 5. The beginning of Christian life was baptism. Those adults who desired to be admitted through the laver of regeneration into the body of Christ had to submit to a course of instruction, during which they were called catechumens, and were not allowed to be present at the celebration of Holy Communion. In primitive times this instruction seems to have been of a practical kind, impressing on the candidate the great distinction between the way of life and the way of death. The catechumenate lasted ordinarily, at the end of the third century, two years or even three, though it might be shortened in special cases. In the times immediately succeeding the apostolic, we find that the candidate, after instruction, was taken to some place where there was water, if possible to a running stream, both the baptized and the baptizer fasting, and there plunged into the water in the name of the Holy Trinity. Warm water might be used in case of necessity, and it was sufficient, when circumstances admitted of nothing else, to pour water thrice on the head of the candidate. Later, at the end of the second and the beginning of the third century, we find a more elaborate ritual. The candidate was questioned as to his faith, he renounced the devil in his pomps, and was exorcised to free him from his power. The water was blessed by the bishop, before baptism, which took place by trine immersion or effusion in the name of the Holy Trinity, he was anointed, and again on leaving the water, when he was also given to taste of milk and honey and immediately afterwards he received imposition of hands with prayer for the gift of the Holy Spirit. This laying on of hands, being in the West reserved to the bishop, soon became a separate rite. That in early times infants were baptized, in accordance with the principle laid down by Irenaeus, is evident from Tertullian's indignant remonstrance. Origen, in the third century, found infant baptism an immemorial custom, held to be apostolic. Sponsors were necessary both for adults and infants, in the first case, as guarantees of the honest intention of the candidate, in the second, to give additional security that the children should be brought up as Christians. If one who had professed his readiness to receive baptism died the martyr's death, without having actually passed through the purifying flood, the baptism of blood was always held to be at least equivalent to that of water. Both kinds were typified in the blood and water which flowed from the Lord's wounded side. Those who suffer martyrdom, unbaptized, share in the blessing of the penitent robber. Towards the end of the second century, Tertullian raised the question whether baptism conferred by heretics was valid, and answered it in the negative. Agrippinus, bishop of Carthage, agreed with him, and baptized anew Montanists who came over to the church. The same practice prevailed in Asia Minor, Alexandria, and many other eastern churches, and was sanctioned by a series of provincial synods at Carthage, Iconium, and Synoda. The ancient practice of the Roman church was different, in Rome, the heretic who returned to the church, if he had been baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity, was admitted to communion by simple imposition of hands, as penitents were. The churches of Carthage and Rome were brought into contact in consequence of their common concern with Novatianism, and each was offended at the other's practice. Stephen, bishop of Rome, was not disposed to tolerate a custom which varied from his own, and threatened to withdraw from communion with the African and Asiatic churches if they persisted in their offense. An absolute breach was, however, prevented by the mediation of Dionysius of Alexandria. 
but Cyprian was unable to reconcile the Roman principles with his conception of the Catholic Church. There could be no true baptism outside the Church, for heretics did not confer gifts of the Spirit, which they did not themselves possess. Against the authority of the Roman See, he protested that this was not a matter to be settled by tradition, but by reason, nor was one bishop to lord it over another, since all were partakers of a like grace. Stephen thereupon refused to receive the legates of Cyprian in Rome, and withdrew from communion with him and his church. He even went so far as to call Cyprian a false Christ, a false prophet, a deceitful worker. A council of the African province, in the year 256, under Cyprian's presidency, decided in favor of their ancient custom. The Asiatic churches generally took the same side, and their metropolitan, Firmilian, bishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia, wrote to Cyprian a formal declaration of their opinion on the matter at issue, containing a strong condemnation of the conduct of the bishop of Rome. The contest was an obstinate one, and outlived both the principal combatants. Stephen suffered martyrdom in 257, and Cyprian in the following year. Meantime the kindly and judicious Dionysius of Alexandria had again intervened, and the persecution under Valerian no doubt turned men's thoughts to more pressing needs. A friendly message from Zeistus, Stephen's successor, was brought to Cyprian shortly before his execution. Gradually the Roman practice prevailed. It was sanctioned by a synod at Arles, at which several Numidian bishops were present, in the year 314. Christians assembled themselves together, mindful of the Lord's promise and the Apostles' warning, to worship God, to strengthen and refresh their own souls, to realize their union with Christ and with each other. These ends they sought especially in the Supper of the Lord, or Holy Eucharist. The earliest account remaining to us of this celebration teaches us that believers met on the Lord's Day, when they confessed their sins, and were warned that no one who is at enmity with his brother should approach the Feast of Love. Over the cup thanks were given for the Holy Vine of David, made known to us through Jesus Christ, over the broken bread, for the life and knowledge made known to us through Him, and prayer was made that the disciples should be gathered into the kingdom, even as the scattered grains were made one loaf. After reception, thanks were given for God's holy name revealed to us, and for knowledge and faith, for spiritual meat and drink, for immortal life made known to us through the Son, and prayer was made for the perfecting of the church and the passing away of the present world. The service ended with an invitation to those who were without, and the watchword Maranatha, the Lord cometh. From the account of Justin, later in age and differing in place from that of the teaching, we find that, in the Sunday service, portions were read from the memoirs of the apostles, probably the gospels, and from the prophets. The reading was followed by an exhortation from the presiding brother, and then all stood up to pray. After this, bread and wine mixed with water were brought, and the president uttered prayer and thanksgiving. Then those present partook, and portions were sent to the absent by the hands of the deacons. Upon this followed the offering of alms, which were deposited with the president to be administered for the benefit of the sick and needy. The holy kiss is mentioned in Justin's description of the Eucharist, which immediately succeeded a baptism, but not in that of an ordinary Sunday. Both the teaching and Justin speak of the Eucharist service as a sacrifice. Elsewhere, Justin mentions that in the Eucharist thanks were given for our creation and for our redemption through Christ. Irenaeus, too, speaks of the giving of thanks over the elements. We offer, he says, unto God the bread and the cup of blessing, giving thanks unto him for that he bade the earth bring forth these fruits for our sustenance, and we call forth the Holy Spirit to declare or manifest this sacrifice, even the bread the body of Christ, and the cup the blood of Christ, 
that they who partake of these copies, antitupon, may obtain remission of their sins and everlasting life. The intercessions which, according to Tertullian, the faithful made on behalf of emperors and the peace of the empire, and for enemies, their prayers for fruitful seasons, their commemoration of, and intercession for the dead, all probably took place in connection with the Eucharist. Tertullian implies that a thanksgiving took place in the church over the elements, and he also mentions that prayers called orationes sacrificorum followed communion. Consecrated bread was kept in private homes and tasted before other food. Origen speaks of the loaves offered with thanksgiving and prayer over the gifts as having been made, in consequence of the prayer, a certain body, holy and hallowing those who use it with sound purpose. Cyprian first distinctly puts forth the principle that the Lord's acts in the Last Supper are to be followed by the celebrant in the Eucharist. Because, he says, we make mention of the Lord's passion in all our sacrifices, we ought to do no other thing than he did, for Scripture says that so often as we offer the cup in commemoration of the Lord and his passion, we should do that which it is evident that he did. We also find from Cyprian that in the Eucharist intercession was made for brethren in affliction, whose names were recited, as were also the names of those who had made offerings, and of the faithful departed. A much more developed form of liturgy than any described in earlier documents is found in the second book of the Apostolical Constitutions. There, bishops, presbyters, and deacons take part in the service, the lections from the Old Testament are intermingled with psalmody, there follow lections from the New Testament, ending with the Gospel. Then, silence is kept for a space, followed by exhortation from the presbyters and bishop. This ended, catechumens and penitents depart, and the faithful, turning to the east, the abode of God, the seat of paradise, stand up and pray. Then follows the oblation of the elements, the warning to those in enmity or in hypocrisy, the kiss, the prayer of the deacon for the church and the world, the bishop's blessing in the words of the Hebrew priest, his prayer, and the sacrifice, followed by communion. The doors are guarded that no uninitiated person may enter. The Eucharist service, as described here, is summed up in the words, the reading of the prophets, the proclaiming of the gospels, the oblation of the sacrifice, the gift of the holy food. In primitive times the bread was broken and the cup blessed at a meal, at first the meal of a household, afterwards a more public one to which each brother brought his contribution. This seems to have been still customary at the time when the teaching was written, but in Justin's time, in the middle of the second century, it seems clear that no food was partaken of at communion except the consecrated bread and wine. So long as the communion continued to be celebrated in the primitive manner, it was almost certainly held in the evening, at the usual hour of the principal meal. But even in Pliny's time Christians held a meeting before dawn, and their habit of meeting in obscurity caused the heathen to reproach them with loving darkness rather than light. In the African church of the second and third centuries it is clear that Christians communicated before dawn, though it seems probable that in some cases they received in the evening also. Of the evening participation, however, Cyprian seems to speak as if it were rather a domestic than a public rite. Besides the Eucharist, Christians also assembled at common meals, tables, or love feasts, for social intercourse and edification. Tertullian describes the modest table and the sober joyousness of these festivals, which afterward, in his Montanistic fervor, he calumniated. It is, however, in fact, evident that the love feasts in some cases degenerated into mere scenes of enjoyment. Directions are given in the apostolical constitutions for the proper distribution of portions to the several ministers by the host who gives a love feast. Prayer was an essential part of Christian life. 
the third, sixth, and ninth hours were marked out by scriptural precedent, and we find them observed as special times of prayer in the second century. In the third there was added a prayer earlier than that of the third hour, and a prayer later than that of the ninth hour. The earlier authorities gave no ground for supposing that these prayers were said in churches, but in the apostolical constitutions the people are exhorted to come to the church daily, morning and evening. In the early days of Christianity, marriage must of course have been celebrated in accordance with the law of the land, in order to obtain legal validity, but it was early recognized that the union of believers should be sanctified by God's blessing, and men of the stricter school came to regard a marriage not publicly declared in the church as no valid marriage at all. The marriage ring and the veil seem to have been retained from old Roman custom, but the wreath, from its pagan associations, was disapproved. Marriages of Christians with heathen were naturally discouraged. Divorce was permitted for the one cause only which was recognized as valid by the Lord, adultery. In the church the bodies of the departed acquired a new sacredness, and were laid to rest with tender care. Christian feeling shrank from reducing the body of a believer to ashes, after the heathen fashion, and preferred to lay it reverently in the bosom of the earth, to await the general resurrection. The body was frequently embalmed. The clergy, as well as the friends and kinsfolk of the departed, accompanied it to the grave, chanting psalms as they went. Nor were the dead forgotten when they were laid to rest. The anniversary of a brother's departure was observed by the faithful with oblations, love-feast, prayer, and celebration of the Eucharist, if possible at the tomb, in which special mention was made of the departed. As was natural, Christian brethren desired to rest near each other, and the places set apart for the reception of their remains, whether on the surface of the ground or in catacombs, were called cemeteries or sleeping places. The custom of placing lamps or tapers in places of burial seems to have arisen at an early period. Like the Hebrews, Christians loved to deposit their dead in tombs hewn in the rock. In the neighborhood of towns it was of course rarely possible to obtain such burying places except by subterranean excavation. Such excavations are found at Alexandria, in Sicily, at Naples, at Chiusi, at Milan, but most of all near Rome, where in later times they were known as catacombs. These form an immense series of chambers for burial, connected by long corridors and galleries, and were undoubtedly excavated in the soft tufa granulare, for the purpose for which they were actually used. The earliest appear to be almost coeval with the first appearance of Christianity in Rome. As Christians enjoyed, in general, the same protection for their dead as other subjects of the empire, there is no reason to suppose that the catacombs were formed simply to conceal Christian burial places, yet it is noteworthy that from the time that Christianity was recognized as the religion of the empire, burials in the catacombs became infrequent and gradually ceased. End of chapter 8, part 2